Hello and welcome to the Negroni Talks podcast, brought to you from East London and supported by Campari. Set up to be lively, provocative debates on issues around architecture, the Negroni Talks are hosted at the Venetian restaurant Ombro in Hackney and organised by Architects Fourth Space with the assistance of Rob Fain and Bobby Jewell. The talks are designed to emulate the opinionated and convivial free-flowing debates found in the fin de siècle European Café Society, being fuelled by food, drink and particularly Negroni. There's no stage, no standing on ceremony and the audience are asked to participate as much as invited speakers and the chair for the event. These recordings are presented as they happen live and like the talks themselves with no frills and little or no editing to bring you the arguments of the evening direct and unfiltered. Thank you very much. Uh, public procurement. Wow. Uh, it, I'm amazing to see so many people here interested in public procurement. I think there will be fewer people here than MIPIM, but there we go. Um, so, uh, organising a talk on, on public procurement is a bit like, I suppose, organising a CPD on damp-proof membranes or roller shutters or something. Um, but, but in reality, it's something that all young practices, all practices, actually, anybody who wants to... Uh, do work with the public sector has to engage with in some way. Um, so, uh, so hopefully we're going to unpick some of the uh, some of the challenges this evening uh, around uh, winning work uh, or not with the uh, with the public sector. Um, really, public procurement seems to be primarily about risk management. I think anybody who's listened to the um, to the to the Grenfell uh, public inquiry this week will be aware that. Uh, in that case, public procurement seems to have failed. Um, some of the some of the uh, revelations coming out of that are quite are quite are quite shocking. Um, but it does seem that uh, the UK public sector is obsessed with risk. But maybe it's the wrong kind of risk that we're trying to trying to manage. Um, I think design competitions are quite a useful. Um, bellwether for attitudes to, uh, to, 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 to risk. Um, so I did a bit of, a, bit of digging around uh, the OGU website. I, uh, OGU, I'm, I'm assuming you're all kind of aware. We'd, if you're not aware of what OGU is, don't bother because we won't apply soon. So but anyway, um, within, within OGU, there's a specific type of... This is getting really geeky now. Uh, apologies. But it's a specific type of um, p- procurement procedure that governs design competitions, right? It's designed for architects. And uh, if you look at the 2019 statistics, uh, to give you an idea of how the UK deals with procurement and its attitude to, to, to risk, in France in 2019, they ran 763 OG design contests. In Germany, uh, there were 282. The massive country of Lithuania uh, ran 15. And in the UK, we managed one. Liechtenstein also managed one with, uh, with a fraction of our GDP. So, so why is that? Why are we so obsessed with, uh, with you know, with, with, aren't, aren't design competitions a good way to, design, you know, to decide on who, sh- who should design a building for you? Uh, so let's find out. So we've got some uh, great guests this evening. We have um, Merlin Fulcher, from, who's the competitions editor of the AGI. I'm sure you've all, you all know Merlin very well. He's the person that writes, uh, well, he, he writes pr- predominantly about, about design competitions and procurement 
first when they're posted and then inevitably when they go horribly wrong. Um, we have uh, Lisa Wu. Lisa sitting next to Merlin down there. So Lisa is head of placemaking at, uh, for, for Meridian Water uh, with Enfield Council. Uh, Meridian Water, I'm sure you're all aware, but it's uh, one of the largest council-led regeneration projects in the UK. It's a £6 billion 20-year program for um, 10,000 homes and workspace uh, in, in Enfield and Lisa is the gatekeeper for public procurement so anybody who wants to win work with, uh, with, with uh, Enfield Council speak to Lisa afterwards for McHugh. Uh, thirdly we have uh, Hilary Satchwell from Tybalt uh, who's going to be speaking uh, about uh, the uh, the, the, the supplier side. So Tibbles does a lot of work in the public sector. So Hillary's going to uh, tell us all how they're so successful and what we can learn uh, from from uh, from Tibbles. And finally, uh, we have Ray Witter Williams, uh, who is a now I hope I got the title right. Senior Project Officer, uh, prin princi Principal. She's been promoted. Uh, <laughs> principal Project Officer from uh, in, in the Regen and uh, Economic Development team at the GLA and is also responsible for running, amongst other things, the uh, ADA, the Architecture, Design and Urbanism panel on behalf of the Mayor of London. Um, so let's make a start. So I, I guess um, let's go to Merlin first. So Mer have, you got a, have you got a corona stick down there you can speak into? Yeah, okay. Which we can pass around later. Hello. So, so what we're going to do? Uh, each each of the each of the um, each of the speakers will uh, will talk for um, two or three minutes uh, uh, on on topic of their choosing. I mean, it can be public procurement or something else. I don't care. Uh, and then we'll open it up to the floor. And if you want to ask specific questions of any of us, or just you know rant, don't rant too much. We all know that public procurement is a pain in the arse. So you know, it, it would be nice if we can come up with some ideas as to so, how to solve it rather than just moaning about how bloody difficult it is. So, Merlin, from your experience, would you like to tell us a little bit about, uh, about the state of public procurement and some other frustrations and opportunities that, uh, that we experience? Okay, well, um, so yeah, as you heard, I am Merlin Fulcher. I'm a competitions editor for Architects Journal and also Architectural Review. Um, I think that's probably, I'm probably the only competitions editor in the UK, probably the, one of the only journalists really doing specifically this kind of thing that I've come across in the five or even six years that I've done it, uh, which is pretty weird, you know, it's, a, it's quite a niche area. Um, but we, uh, in the ten years that I've worked for the AJ, um, we'd, always, we'd always covered competitions, uh, we'd always thought yeah, that was always a, a bit of th a thing that was very of interest to our readership. Uh, and, and for sort of various different reasons, which I'll, which I'll come back to. But um, I thought what I'd do is I'd probably explain to you what do I do as a, as a journalist, right? So, what's my, so I, I look every week, I'm looking at what kind of things are going on. And then I'm thinking I'm going to write about some of them because I want my readers to know about certain commissions that exist uh, in the world of architecture in the UK and also beyond. So I have to, to choose a certain number of things to write about, and I sort of think, well, which ones are good and which ones are bad? And primarily, what my view is, is that um, 
the public sector does a lot of stuff. But there's also a lot of stuff the public sector doesn't do, right? Most of the competitions and most of the things we're going to discuss tonight are public sector things. Uh, so when I see a council somewhere that wants to build some new housing, or I see some kind of charity that wants to create some really interesting art gallery out of some rotting old grade two star listed building that shouldn't be in that condition, I think, well, you know, that's, that's pretty cool. That's the sort of thing that I, I want to see happening in the world. And I think also that's the sort of thing that... Um, that could go on to be a very interesting award-winning bit of architecture. And then I think, obviously, my readers uh, are the sort of people that I'd like to do that work. And then with the, with the AJ, I mean, is anyone here subscribed to the Architects Journal? Yeah, you're not just using your friends' logins, you actually, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, but, you know, I would come back to that, and I'd say when you want journalists, when you want us to campaign on procurement, like, you know, it's, it's literally, it's just me. And I work two days a week in this job, yeah? And, uh, you know, look at the output that you get for two days' work out of one journalist, right? <laughs> so seriously, every subscription is really good value for money in the terms of impact that it actually has on a lot of the things that would draw you to an event like this tonight, a lot of that frustration. Like, you know, enough sales pitch. But um, so effectively, choose the competitions and write about those competitions and then publish those competitions and then, you know, look at the, the kind of impact that that has. And that has an impact on the clients because the clients who might be some sleepy little local authority are suddenly getting a storm load of applications and people asking them questions, difficult questions that make them think that they've really messed up this procurement process. And things really avalanche, right? So the, you, know, you might think, oh, why is, why is he chosen to write about that thing? Well, that local authority are absolutely terrified that I've written about that thing, right? And there's all kind of stuff breaking loose, including people like Russell Curtis from Project Compass and other campaign groups who are then pouring over the documents to see where they've gone wrong. Um, sometimes competitions end happily. I have a spreadsheet where I've, I monitor how many end happily. The statistics aren't that good. Um, that will be shared one day. Um, well, I mean, we'll, we can come back and define that later on. I mean, it's very relative, yeah. But it, as it ended with a built, completed project. And I would say on my own criteria, a project that goes on in is good architecture and could win awards, right? That kind of thing. Uh, and then things go wrong. And then, you know, we have to make decisions about when things go wrong. You know, you, a lot of you are architects. You know what architects are like. People like to moan about things. I get a lot of emails where people complain about things. Sometimes they're legitimate good complaints. Sometimes they're not. We have to filter through that. And there are competitions that go epically wrong. And we have to make decisions and we invest a lot of time. And we do an investigation and we publish that. And then we share that information. And then we try and, you know, escalate that, get that out into the wider media. So that's a kind of broad, broad scope of what I do. And my observation from doing this work is that competitions are a very emotive topic because it really, really goes to the heart of what we are as architects because it's, in it, it, there is that kind of grain of a meritocratic an opportunity that with a good enough idea you can somehow win this amazing commission and that you can somehow transform your fortunes, be those you know, cultural, intellectual, financial, whatever, right? And that still does happen, and there are still good competitions out there. But when you look at, say, something like you know, Guggenheim Helsinki, I mean, that is an example of that sheer energy you know, times by 1,500 people, yeah? With all of the people, that, you know, so, so it's, 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 and it's very odd, right? 
And then there's also the very technical side of competitions, uh, which is very, very dry. And that if you start to talk to someone about procurement, their eyes gloss over and they don't want to they don't want to listen. Right. And so we have to reconcile those things. We have to reconcile the immense enthusiasm, not just from us, but also from clients and the amazing power that competitions have to win over people outside of architecture to communicate the kind of democratic nature of the selection and the kind of genesis of aesthetics and things like that. Uh, but also at the same time, um, uh, bring some kind of rigor to it. I think my personal thing that I really dubious about is the jury panels, because they're just so difficult to know what goes on on a jury panel. I don't judge competitions, but I've sat and observed juries, and I certainly would, would, if I was an architect, I would ask for a lot more from juries. Thank you. Hello. Thanks, Merlin. Um, so, um, so, Lisa, you, from the other side, now you, you, are, you are a person that is responsible for, uh, for, uh, for, you know, for commissioning architects and, and, and running contests of one, one form or another. So why, why should I apply for, a, uh, you know, for, a, for, for an open tender as part of uh, Enfield's procurement rather than just going and putting 30 grand on a horse at New York? <laughs> you know, somewhere. <laughs> We're not yet um, running design contests yet. Yet. We will get there. But this project is still at a relatively early stage, and there isn't a building on the ground. So it's at a master planning stage, and we will, the homes will be coming forward gradually. 10,000 homes is a lot. It's 30,000 population. It's, it's a city scale. So more and more public sector procurement will be launched through the process, but we are still at a very early stage. And our team is growing to be able to manage workloads such as those great design competition coming through our way and to be able to meaningfully respond to it. So we will get there. Um, but perhaps I thought it would be useful just to give you an insight of what goes around in, within the public sector and some challenges we face and how we can get better. Basically, I'm just trying to say, don't hate us. <laughs> and so I'm trying to share the process with you. Um, but so far, the project has been amazing um, to get to the stage where it's at. Anyone from Carcosity Carson Architects today? You're amazing. <laughs> so with amazing designs done by Carcosity Architects, we were able to unlock the project to this stage so far. Um, so in terms of public sector procurement, I thought it'd be worth sort of maybe going into a little detail to just explain the difference between commissioning and procurement. Is anyone aware of the difference between the two terms? What's the difference between procurement and commissioning? Anyone? Sorry, I'm boring you to death. <laughs> so procurement is basically route to the market. Yeah, and route to the market. And uh, it's an act of buying things in the public sector compliant way. It's a process that's involved making sure public funds are spent well in, in a proper way. Whereas commissioning is the whole cycle of identifying what your needs are, and then making sure you go to the right market, route to market, making sure you get what you need, and to evaluate whether you've actually got what you need. So those are different things. Um, but I commission, and our team commission, more than 50% of the work we do, we commission. And one of my team member mentioned to me the other day, Lisa, I never thought spending money could be this difficult. <laughs> 
So we said, well, if it was our money, you know, not an issue. Champagne for everyone. So it's definitely not an issue. But spending for public uh, sector money, it is difficult. And the processes are sometimes quite onerous. Coupled with that, when you overlay council's own procurement governance requirements and public sector procurement rules in general, if you put the two together, you need to go through a vast array of approvals. And it can be quite daunting. So the commissioners normally do is there's a state of paralysis. How am I ever going to go through these different processes to get what I need? So these are the situations the commissioners normally face. Often what they do is, okay, let's just get together and see if we can aggregate all the services and say, what do you need, what do you need, what do you need, and run a really big procurement. Say, we're going to need planning, civils, architecture, blah, 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 and we're going to run a tender, and then we're going to move the project along that way. Then what happens is, yes, some of them can offer all of those services, but they're usually companies that start with capital A, or sometimes capital B. <laughs> so those companies are really big and they have really strong financial standing and they provide hefty insurance coverage. And also they have track record of delivering something so big and so complex. So ah, it just plows through the approval process and then we deliver. So what I think now uh, the issue here is um, we need to reduce, I guess, make it leaner, the public sector procurement process, but actually empower those commissioners to ask, is this really getting the best value for money? And is this going to really derive in providing more opportunities for many of the practices which is hungry for more work and can bring really dynamic design to the table? And is it going to bring more value to the best of what architecture can bring? So those questions are still at play, and we are going to improve on those aspects and to do things better. But the commissioners in general needs empowerment to be able to argue through all those processes and take people along with them. Um, and we need to build a lot of homes. I mean, 66,000 homes per year in London. So there is a lot of need to build many, many homes and many, many homes mean many, many great places to be created. So in that context, good commissioning is ever so relevant. Thank you. Thank you, Lisa. Um, so, uh, Hilary, um, Tibbles has done very well out of uh, public sector procurement. You seem to win all sorts of uh, lovely master plans and projects and things. So tell us all, how, what's the secret? Well, we can always win more. Always happy with that. So... Um, I personally have spent um, much of the last 10 years putting together and managing... Oh, it's a bit closer. Okay. Putting together and managing multidisciplinary teams, delivering, trying to deliver really good housing, mostly in London um, and out of London, um, for the public sector. So, mostly this work's been procured through the Homes England Multidisciplinary Panel, which is a bit of a mouthful, and you may well have heard of it. It's been around a while. Um, but actually, most of the projects we've been doing aren't for Homes England although some of them are, but most of the ones in London aren't. And therefore, they're signed-up partners, which are generally councils who are looking for a procurement route and who want to know how they can get to people who are interested in the things that they're interested in. And that's what we're trying to help with. So in order to do this, um, we're only a practice of about 30. Um, 
And we've been on a Homes England panel on and off for, for, for probably 10 or so, 12 or 12, 15 years. Um, when the panel before last came round, we realised that on our own, we couldn't um, really meet all of the criteria. So we um, joined together with some engineers who we'd been working with for quite a long time and formed a contractual JV, contractual joint venture, um, which just means we're still separate companies, but we, on, a con on each contract basis, we agree to, um, to work together. And we formed a team of all different um, disciplines. There's engineers, there's lots of architects, there's ecologists, um, who are all the people you might need, project managers, um, sunlight and daylight consultants. All of those people form part of our, our wider network um, and who help us put together bids and submissions to the public sector to help them deliver projects. This is no small undertaking. I won't pretend that even getting on the Homes England framework, which doesn't even guarantee you a project, is easy. It is a massive undertaking and a huge piece of work. But we think that in order to be at the table helping the public sector delivering design quality and delivering good places, we have to put ourselves in that position. We can't just wait for people to come up with, oh, here's a great ready-made project. Tibbles, would you like to deliver that? That is not how it works generally in our experience. You have to get yourself in there, elbows out, saying, actually, we can really help you with this. There are plenty of clients who don't want that help. They want something different. Um, but for those that are interested in thinking about how a network of SMEs might help them deliver good projects um, and work with them in a way that listens to what their concerns, our interests are, then that's what we, that's what we want to do. That's what, how we want to help them. Um, and I think over time, gradually, more architects have realised that this is a useful thing to do um, in the... On the current Homes England framework, I think there are three architect-led teams, one of which is Karakusevich Carson, another one is BDP um, and um, Tibbalds. Um, most of the others tend to be really big engineering firms because that is who is generally on lots of big frameworks. Um, whether that works is, is, a, is an interesting question, but um, obviously we don't need all of the projects on that framework. We just need some interesting ones that we can come forward and deliver. So we want to put this focus on design quality. We want to think about how multidisciplinary tables can be put together for each project. Um, and also we want to think about what we can offer to clients that really pushes design quality. So one of the things we've done um, a number of times is... is run design competitions um, as part of the projects for clients and that's been really interesting um, and um, it doesn't necessarily it's not an easy process you've got to be the one to tell those architects that haven't won that they haven't won and they often don't take that brilliantly um, I'm sure some of them will speak to me again soon uh, <laughs> But you have to make some really difficult... You have to, to put yourself in that position. You've got to make some really difficult choices and you have to give some really difficult feedback to people. But I think there's some really useful procurement truths I've been thinking about um, today that I think it's worth just bearing in mind when we're having this discussion about kind of why can't I get on this framework? Why can't I do this? Why can't I win these projects? Um, there are some good things about public procurement. There is some transparency in that process. We can see that this stuff is being procured. When your average developer is appointing, we have no idea if it's the last blokey he, I say that carefully, played golf with or was down the pub with. We just don't know. Whereas in public procurement, we have an idea. But it isn't an unloaded process. It's a very loaded process. And it, good does not always prevail. Some frameworks are terrible. 
Some frameworks are okay, but they're never easy. Um, people really don't understand the benefit of employing you if you don't explain what you offer in terms that they understand. And the extent to which many people in the world don't understand the language and the, the way that architects want to describe things to them, I think I really can't overplay. The procurement profession, um, and there is one, generally don't understand the implication of what they're asking. Client, uh, don't, clients don't understand necessarily how to set up a fair contest. They don't understand why they're transferring risk, but they think it must be a good idea. Um, big companies who we're often competing with can be both good and bad at procurement. It is possible to win against them. And I think the main thing that annoys me a lot is buying contracts which all sorts of people do, is really wrong. So there we are. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Hilary. So, so it's interesting, you talked a lot about frameworks there. And um, fr frame, I'm, presumably everybody knows what, what, a framework, uh, what a framework is and how it operates. And um, you know, they're challenging. You know, it's great if you're on one. There's no guarantee to, to get, you know, you'll get a work out of it, but it's great if you're on one. But they tend to be around, you know, they tend to be four years, four years, you know, take, you know, four years, 48 months. And if you don't get on it, you're effectively locked out of work for four years. So, you know, there are challenges around that. Um, and it does seem extremely unfair that, you know, a lot of these frameworks that you see set up just have the same old practices on them again and again and again. And it's interesting to see, well, why, why the question we should be asking is, why is it a framework and not just individual projects that are broken up and procured to the best architects? Because we know from, uh, from a lot of the public sector work that we do, we win work with clients who have frameworks, but they've ended up with a framework of practices who are entirely unsuited for the kind of work that they want to procure. So it's a, it's a very strange system. So Ray runs the ADUB, the Architecture, Design, and Urbanism panel for the GLA, which I think, I think, to say, I think it's probably fair to say is one of the better frameworks. Um, we're on it, but, that, I'm, I, but, <laughs> but, but, but I'm, I'm saying that from a very neutral, from my, from my sort of... Um, background as somebody who has a, a, a healthy interest in procurement. So, Ray, could you tell us a little bit about what you do and some of the challenges around uh, procuring good architects as opposed to those that are just good at filling out PQQs? Sure. Hi, everyone. Um, just before I launch into that, I thought it might be helpful for context to say that I am also an architect. Um, and kind of paid my dues of about 10 years working in practice. Uh, at a mixture of practices who had varying levels of success in winning public projects. And if you'd have said to me three years ago that you're going to become a public procurement expert, I would have been like, no, no way. Um, but I, as Russell said, I sit here today as manager of the, the Mayor's Architecture, Design and Urbanism Panel Framework. And I also lead... Pillar 5 of the Mayor's Good Growth by Design programme, which um, I'll give you a bit of an overview of. But I think what Lisa said, kind of to start off, is that it's really important to understand those, the obligations of the public sector. I think that's one of the first things. In winning public sector work, you have to understand the hoops that we all have to go through in order to commission 
projects from the very beginning to the very end. And that's really important. And that includes um, not just like writing the brief and procuring the architects in the most transparent way. It includes complying, thing, complying with things like the public sector equality duty, the social value act. Our in, I know it's really boring, but it's also about our internal expenditure thresholds because we're spending public money. So we need to be accountable and transparent in the way that we do that. Depending on the level of money we're spending, it also has a knock-on effect on the different levels of sign-off that we need. And, that, and it also has an effect on whether we have to use a framework or not. So um, I will talk about that later, ways of winning work um, through ways that aren't about, about through a framework. But for the purposes of this little intro, we'll kind of focus on that. So really, the creation of like really high-quality places and spaces for London is one of the key aims of the Good Growth by Design programme that was set up as a call to action to everyone involved in the, in the built environment profession to help realise the Mayor's vision of good growth. So that's growth that is inclusive, sustainable and contextual. Um, and procurement and commissioning is a really central tenant of that um, Good Growth by Design programme. It has its own pillar, it's called Commissioning Quality. And when you bear in mind that the mayor spends about 20 billion um, on built environment projects, it's really important that we need to ensure excellence and intelligent commissioning in the way that those projects are developed and, deli and managed and delivered. Um, it's also, through pillar five of that program, we're basically showing a commitment to support best practice approaches to procurement, best practice approaches to commissioning. That involves um, setting out how to write a brief for clients, for commissioning clients in the public sector. You'd be surprised how many don't know how to do that in the best possible way. So it's about, and it's also about running design competitions um, that are open and transparent and fair and giving that kind of pre best practice approach. Other ways that we can also maximise social value um, for local groups, local communities, residents, through a design methodology, for example. And also one of our kind of really um, big priorities is about supporting diversity in the profession. Um, the diversity of the profession is a, is a massive problem um, and it's something that we're really keen to support in terms of um, particularly female and BAME-led practices and to ensure that they can kind of, we can bring them up to a level that allows them to compete and the profession becomes more equal in that respect. But to focus on ADUP, so it's to give you an overview, it's a pre-procured OGU compliant framework of 92 practices. The practices are split into 12 lots. Um, the lot is basically the way of grouping them by um, kind of like service services. So, for example, you, there's a housing lot, uh, there's a master planning lot, there's a historic lot, um, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, it had at its first stage. 1,100 applications. It was a procured via a two-stage process. You can imagine the kind of sheer volume of work that needed to be assessed to go through and get that um, framework in place. And it was also one thing that I should say about it to kind of um, explain why Russell thinks it's maybe one of the better ones is that it has a mandatory award criteria, which means that any public sector organisation that wants to use it has to use this award criteria to score the bids. And that's on the basis of 70% being awarded to quality, including social value. 
25% um, value for money and 5% on equality, diversity and inclusion of the bidding practices approach and their kind of um, to, to forming their team. So it, through that way, we're trying to look at mechanisms of securing high quality projects, um, promoting best practice and kind of addressing those issues around diversity. I'll maybe leave it there um, for now. Happy to answer more questions as an overview. But yeah, there you go. Okay, th thank you, Ray. <clears throat> so, there's, so there's been a lot of backslapping about how wonderful, how wonderful uh, the public sector is at uh, procuring uh, buildings this evening. But I think, as we all know, um, most public sector commissioning, most buildings that come out of public procurement are most, I, maybe sweeping generalisation, but generally a bit shit. I think uh, it's fair to say that you see an awful lot of uh, very poor buildings that have come through the public procure procurement system. So, you know, actually to get, to get a, a sense of who's here tonight, so who, who here bids for public sector work? Right, so, so, so there's, there's a, few, a few people who haven't put their hand up, so why the fuck are you here? <laughs> uh, obviously, you, you may, maybe, you want, you, maybe you want to be, uh, maybe you want to find out how to do that. Maybe this isn't the forum to, to learn about necessarily how, how to win these things. But, um, so so, uh, so uh, let's open this up to the floor a bit. So has anybody got any observations on, um, on, on, on public sector procurement, on competitions, and, and any things you want to sort of raise or discuss? No. Really? I'm going to have to ask all the questions, am I? Let's all go home. Okay, may maybe we'll carry on talking and you can think of something. Um, so uh, may maybe this is one for the, uh, for, for the public clients. But okay, it looks like we're about to leave the European Union. And um, maybe, uh, maybe with it we'll be ditching OJU and, uh, uh, and the Public Contract Regulations 2015, which is the UK's transposition of the OJU regulations. Um, what are we going to do? Is it going to be? Is it going to be a return to the good old days of, you know, dodgy handshakes on golf courses? How how are we going to go about uh, making sure that this is all done very fa fairly? Ray, is that something you might want to? I think that I mean we, regardless of the of the kind of OJU thresholds or not, we have there is a requirement for the public sector to demonstrate value for money in what they're delivering. Again, to kind of reinforce what I said before about spending public money, you still have to show... I actually, I actually Googled... Not Googled. I looked on the GLA procurement policy. <laughs> not Googled. I didn't Google it. It was on the procurement policy. Just to define... Just to define... Just to define um, that uh, the policy requirement for value for money and what it says... I thought it would be interesting. So it says, value for money being defined as providing the best mix of quality and effectiveness of services bought, which should be achieved through competition unless there are compelling reasons not to. Um, which is an interesting thing. And I think to, to pull back in what I was saying before about how like the, the amount that you're spending, you have different obligations. Every public sector organisation has, has, has a different procurement policy. At the GLA, we have a specific one, um, which sets out, you know, if you're spending up to 10K, the way that you have to run that competition. If you're, doing, if you're spending up to 25K, 
you have to send it to an invited list of three and get three quotes. If you're spending up to 50K, it's five quotes, et cetera, et cetera. Um, that's a really important thing to understand. And I think that... But if we're looking at the bigger picture of what if OG's not there, what should we do? I think, actually, you need to look at the starting point. What do you want to achieve? Like, what actually needs to be achieved? We need to achieve the highest of quality um, in the built environment. We need to be supporting diversity and inclusion through procurement and also emerging talent. I think that's a really important part, um, ensuring the next generation of practices are able to compete on that level. Um, and it's really about kind of understanding that bigger picture. Lisa mentioned that process of commissioning, starting with the outcome. The best, the best processes are defined at the very beginning by what you're looking to achieve. And then that kind of creates the best product that you product, whether that's a building or whatever, by the end. Dinah. COVID-19 stick for you. What did you say? Oh, yeah. Um, okay, value for money. That's good. Uh, did um, Gordon Brown invent that phrase? I can't remember where that came from. Um, you mean VFM? VFM, yeah. Um, when we say that phrase sometimes, I'm wondering how do we... That hasn't got the word people in it. And it worries me that we use the phrase value for money. Um, and I, my question to the procurement experts is, how do we then make that link back to what the hell is it like to live there and why is it fantastic and is it going to last forever? And what are the problems with... I mean, we're not, we're not getting very critical here. What are the problems with that term value for money and why are we finding that it um, scuppers us I think it's a really good question but I think that the, the problem is and it's useful to go back to the European example so is the problem the term or is the problem the way in we interpret the term and a lot of the problem with the way that European and OGU rules work is that we do a thing in this country that people refer to as gold plating so Europe has the same rules as us. They do tons of design competitions. They think about people. They think about place as a normal part of everything they do. We have the same rules. We make them all about transferring risk, never think about people, and um, it doesn't really work. So somehow it's the, it's the interpretation that we have. Is it cultural? Is it professional? What is it? What are we doing that is different from Europe when we're all following not quite the same rules because we have different tick boxes, but what are we doing that's different? It's, that's, I think it's going to get worse, yeah. I mean, I think one of the, one, one of the issues is you think about the, 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 the culture, well, the, the processes that we go through this. So, you know, we've got, the, we've got somebody like Ray or Lisa in public bodies who are... You know, who know about the public environment and are you know architects or whatever in in have have a have a background in this stuff. The problem is that most public procurement takes place within organisations where it's somebody buy you know it's the same person buying architectural services as buying bog rolls or hand sanitizer or paper clips or chairs or whatever, and they have no understanding of what it is that architects do. And so that bit of work, that procurement process, is seen as an end in itself. Oh, I need to get an architect, not I need to get a building that works for the people that are going to live and work in it. So we, we sort of ch we chop it up into chunks, and we concentrate on that. And, and at that point, the procurement person said, well, OK, I've done my job. Here's your architect, Mr. or Mrs. Client. Off you go. 
And none of that has looked at what the long-term impact of those buildings are. So, I mean, you know, I don't, I don't know what the answer is, but I mean, presumably it's better having more architects as, as, as commissioners. Can we get a mic over there? I, I think one of the things that's possibly less it is clearly happening in London but isn't happening in the rest of the country is there isn't the support for um, clients to make good decisions. That was something that Cabe did a lot of. I used to work at Cabe. Um, that, you know, we, we wrote a lot of client guides like how to commission a building, how to commission a master plan, what do you literally need to do and what's best practice and, and also trained a lot of people in being good clients. And I think that's unfortunately missing at the moment because there isn't really an organisation doing it. Um, and I think that's where we're seeing some of the worst outcomes is because people with no design training whatsoever are commissioning, you know, enormous buildings or housing or what have you. I mean, Ray, you made an interesting point earlier about um, young talent and, and trying to encourage uh, diversity within... within, uh, within um, the built environment, uh, and one of the one of the issues is that an awful lot of uh, for, of, of tender processes ask for a track record. Um, and if if anybody's been watching the Grenfell uh, inquiry this week, one of the things that's come out is that Studio E had no track record in in refurbishing high-rise buildings and this is this this is a this is a potentially a big issue now i'm worried that one of the reactions to this will be simply that the procurement profession locks down and says well actually if you're going to do a school or a you know a, a high-rise refurbishment or some housing we want to see three or five examples of that within the last five years which is going to lock out lots of young practices is there a way that we can avoid that Hello? Hello? Yeah. Um, it's a sliding scale, isn't it, though? Because I, I think that there's, there are different ways that emerging practices can win work with the public sector. I know that, I know, and obviously I'm speaking from the, the DLA's perspective, but we, we understand the kind of procurement hoops that need to be jumped that public sector organizations need to jump through and particularly through our um, good growth fund program which is our 70 million pound regeneration program um, the projects that we're funding across London where they're not very big some of them they are quite modest and we encourage and support the local authorities that are delivering those projects to procure and prioritize emerging talent um, female and BME-led practices um, as part of that kind of list that the companies are going, that the uh, organisations are going to. I think a really important part of this is, obviously, you can't go from zero to ten. You have to understand and kind of, you know, test the water and wet your toes, if you like, in the world of public projects. And that involves being proactive and also making the public sector aware of the kind of things that you do. If you are genuinely delivering public good through your work um, and public benefit, whether it's through the kind of design methodology approach or whether it's through the kind of like actual built outcomes, then you need to make, make us all aware of that so that you can kind of get those opportunities. And the, be and the most, and the, I, I would say the emerging practices that do that that have become more successful and are winning more of those projects now 
um, are ones that really kind of had a really proactive approach at wanting to work with the public sector, and they made that their mission. You know, it's that, and I, you know, I'm kind of for fear of being lynched by a room full of architects. I say what I'm about to say with kind of uh, slight trepidation, but just just because you're an architect, it doesn't mean that you're necessarily good at delivering public projects. And I think we have to acknowledge that. And if you're not, you need to acknowledge why. I think another, another massive um, issue is also the quality of bids that I've assessed, whether it's kind of from the, the framework process or just in an in invited list, the quality of the bids and the way that practices respond to ITTs, it varies so much. And some practices are absolutely terrible at it. And they were, they're practices as well that you wouldn't expect to be bad because they're quite successful in some ways. But they just don't answer the question. And they're also quite... Uh, it, the kind of language and the way that they kind of set things out is very exclusive. It's, you know, you, when you think about the public sector, you have to think about the people you're appealing to, some of which, as Russell's kind of highlighted, don't have a, necessarily a built environment background. That's the nature of the context that we're working with. So you need to think about the, even the way that you present yourself and communicate with different audiences, I think is really important. I don't know if I answered the question there. Already. Perfectly. Russ, Russell? Yes. Um, who said... Merlin. Oh, Merlin. Uh, there so, you go there. Hello, so just um, uh, building on that, um, I mean, also what I, was, I would say as well, the, the Studio E example is a bit tricky because, as we know, Studio E wasn't procured for that job. So they intentionally lowered their fee so they wouldn't have to go through the OG procurement. So effectively, they... The, the, the system doesn't necessarily need to change to stop Studio E from happening. Studio E itself was behaving in an apparent cynical way and could have then made a commercial decision to invest loads in building up knowledge in understanding how to do high-rise work and didn't because they were presumably charging too low fees so they had no money. Um, so I fully agree with what Ray is saying. To get to, this, isn't an this isn't a moment where people are suddenly frozen out of work they've never done, but practices have to make a conscious decision to invest in research and developing. And, and then sometimes that is going in for competitions for work they've never done before. There was a uh, framework tendered in London for Southwark Council where for one of the lots you could submit competition entries which weren't built uh, for housing, for example, to demonstrate that you had a capacity in housing even if, even if it, you hadn't built anything. So, so I would say, um, so it's not, all, it's not all lost, but we do have to think carefully. And certainly when it comes to leaving the European Union, my impression, I you know, read the OGU every single day, that platform has not changed in a very, very long time, although the way we do things has changed. The idea of OGU was to bring transparency. Here, we don't really use it very well. Um, the things that we have here that, that go alongside OGU, so we have Contracts Finder, the way we use that is possibly with even less vigour than the way we should use OGU. So the, the idea that there's suddenly going to be an online platform that the entire industry uh, religiously puts all this data in to create a really transparent world, I think that's really slim, sadly. And I, I suspect that frameworks will become more important. And certainly for me as a journalist, I actually think that's frustrating because with, there are lots of frameworks out there. There's no single place where I can find out what all the frameworks are and who's on all those frameworks. A lot of people's websites are poorly updated. 
they'll have some article on whatever magazine you know, from the last framework. And then if I want to know who's on that list, I have to email the press office. God knows how anyone else finds out. It's worth pointing out, uh, obviously, that Ryden, who, carried, who was the contractor that carried out uh, uh, the Grenfell Tower refurbishment, did go through an OG process and had done work of a similar nature before. And uh, it looks like they've hardly covered themselves in glory either. So, you know, I'm not sure that that's necessarily a, a, you know, a useful... A, a useful uh, test of capability. Lisa. Russell, you mentioned about why do we keep on asking track record? Simple answer is it's easy. Easiest to ask that. It's just lazy way of defining quality and just to assess whether the capability of the bidder has the capability of what you're asking for. It's a lazy way of defining and asking for, for quality in the method statement. So defining quality for commission commissioning should be our art and we should do it a lot better. ADOP 2, I'm using it, it allows us wonderfully 70% quality, 30% price. Within the 70% quality mark, we should be, those, those who commission should be able to ask for the quality in the right ways as the quality that they will come back with answers, which is not just generic answers. So we've done this and that and that, but where, where the ethos is, where the values is, where the practice, are they really committed to do those public sector projects? So defining quality is something we need to be much better at, and it should be our art, including have you entered a competition before? Those things are valuable. Even at uh, 25 or 30% uh, cost compared to quality in the... Does everybody know what we're talking about when we're talking about these ratios? Sorry to be... But yeah, so even at 25 or 30% cost, it's still uh, possible for certain practices to undercut everybody else and, 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 you know, and buy the job. Is there a reason why we can't commission at 100% quality and just set the fee? Why don't, why don't more people do that? We all know how much it costs to properly service a project. Uh, you know, so so why, why, why can't we do that? Why don't public bodies do that? I mean, quick answer. I don't think we do all know what, how much it costs. Well, certainly the clients don't know. And for a functioning economy, free market economy to work, you have to have price realisation. That doesn't happen because so much stuff is secret. So many people won't say who's on the shortlist. They won't say what the winning fee is. We have hardly any information that we should have to actually properly determine what these, these things are. So it's a dysfunctional market. I, I think it's also, it, but it's also about how you how you assess the cost, like because and it's something that we're that we're looking at um, at City Hall at the moment. But how you actually award that twenty five percent? How does that get awarded? Does the cheapest bid get twenty five percent, and then the most expensive bid get like five or whatever it's broken down to? Or is it worked on an average where the person closest to the average gets the most and the person furthest away from the average gets the least? Or do you look at it in a way that allows you to assess the cost with the resources, which would make sense. But I think the thing is, the challenge that we have at the GLA is that, the TF is that TFL run all of our procurement so we get assigned a procurement officer in the T in the tfl gla collaborative procurement team and they will assess the cost independently of us assessing the quality and the edi so 
you can see there's so many barriers to understanding this, but actually I, I, I really think that to do a bit more work around how the value for money is assessed is really important. And kind of just touching back on what Dinah said before about that definition of value for money, it's not just about the price of the fee. It should be about the resources that you're getting. It should also be about the kind of bigger value that's being added through that practice, through that process. Um, but that's very hard to quantify, especially to a procurement officer that yesterday did a procurement for pens, like, you know, for the planning team, and today is running your built environment procurement for a building. One of the things that actually the GLA and a number of other clients do, you can't always do it for building projects, but certainly projects maybe at early stage or studies, is say, here's our budget, tell us what you can do for that budget. And I think where you can do that is really important. So we very often see tenders, and the first question is, what is the client looking for here? Because you, can't, you often can't read from the brief. Are they looking for the gold plenty tender response? the silver tender response, or is this the bronze, which is that I, I want the best I can have for the limited budget I've got? And if it's the bottom one, I'd much rather just know and we can really help get you what you want for, that, for the money you've got, rather than spending our time, a lot of time, putting a tender together that you, is never going to be the right thing. So we need to find a way to get a little bit more about cost banding or cost, you know, the, the range of costs or something that people can work with. I think that would, that would work, really work. I think the, the contracts finder point is really important because contracts finder is rubbish compared to OG. You can't The way you can search it is rubbish. The categories it's under is rubbish, but that is all we're going to have. So, Merlin, um, without wanting to put you on the spot, um, you've reported on some absolute stinkers over the years. Uh, oh. Any that you can recall that were particularly poorly done? Uh, well, I mean, there's one, there's one going on right now, which is the homes of 2030. I don't know, is anyone in the room involved in this? No? No? I mean, this one, it, has, it hasn't gone wrong. Nothing's gone wrong with it yet. But it's a, it's a very, very odd competition that's been... It's organised by RIBA competitions with the Design Council, uh -oh. with, um, <laughs> with BRE, with Moby, which is George Clark's thing. And um, it's just total chaos, because they launched it on Monday at Future Build uh, with a press release that said nothing about the brief. The brief arrived two days later, by which time everybody had destroyed the brief that didn't exist on the grounds that it was a kind of greenwash exercise. Uh, and as a result, um, you know, and, and there's no way to get any kind of answers about how the competition is organised because nobody involved in it is sort of brave enough to talk about it. And it comes back to, again, what uh, Hillary was saying, that um, you, you need lots of information before you go in. So if I was going to apply for a job, I would talk to that person a lot before applying to that job and decide whether or not to make an application form. Uh, if I go to, if there's a public sector procuring something, if I phone them up and say, hi, I'm going to write an article, they say, oh, I can't talk to you. Um, you can only ask me questions through the procurement portal, you know, and hang up the phone effectively, right? So there's no actual intelligent kind of dialogue around it. And that's what's happening, I think, with a lot of competitions. I think the one, this one that was launched last week, um, has created that atmosphere without necessarily even having to. Um, and then certainly historically, there were too many for me to even remember how many um, that have gone wrong that we've written about. I think a, a slightly uplifting one recently was the Tottenham Pavilion. 
So the Tottenham Pavilion was a totally grassroots competition. They had a brief that was very naive um, and a whole load of quite big names in the profession kind of wrote a letter and kind of descended on it and pretty much kicked them to pieces. And then within a day, they'd come back with a much better brief. And that brief was out there and it was pushed quite widely. And then a whole load of architects and now advisors to the competition. And some of those were the same people who wrote that letter. And that's a kind of uplifting example of something. That competition's still live. They're still doing site tours. And they've sort of turned it around um, thanks to that, that response. So hopefully that won't be one where I end up writing a 10-page feature on it with lots of quotes from Russell. <laughs> I mean, what's interesting about looking at a lot of these, the, well, interesting to me anyway, um, is, is, is so much hidden cost in all of this stuff. So we look at the, you know, look at the, 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 the costs for, the, uh, for the, the public sector in, in running these procurement processes. And you can go to the RIBA or wherever, to, or Malcolm Redding or somebody to run a competition for you, which will cost you a lot of money. But if you look at the amounts of... Uh, cash that's being spent by architects on bidding for these bloody things it can be in you know in some cases it's it's more than the value of the entire project you know if you were to win it uh and 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 nobody seems to be quantifying quite the loss to the economy in all this money that we're throwing at throwing at futile you know um futilely is that a word few few Yes, anyway, you know what I mean, uh, at these competitions. Uh, but nobody's, nobody's bothering to add this up. And, and you know, if, if Dominic Cummings wants to look at some, you know, finding some efficiencies to make in the system, then that, that would be a good place to start. Um, yeah, I mean, I would say a lot of stuff that we do, that, which is economically inact- unbeneficial, still creates financial returns for other people. So, I mean, com- people bidding for that, for those competitions... Is, is, a, is a major economy. Like, for example, the Guggenheim-Helsinki competition. This was a Malcolm Redding competition two or three years ago. The client, Guggenheim, you know, that's legit. They've built some amazing stuff. And who wouldn't want to build the next landmark building? Helsinki is a great, it's a great city, right? Uh, and then the organizer, Malcolm Redding, he's quite well known. He organizes a lot of competitions. So all of these things, people uh, flock to it. And there was something like 1,550 applications to this competition. And the first phase was an open design phase. So effectively, there were 1,550 designs for this building. And those designs are still online, and you can scroll through them. And you can pretty much see every kind of iteration of the aesthetic and formal and other kind of responses that you could imagine to this brief. And that is a fascinating thing, which probably isn't culturally recognized for the artifact that it is. Now, I would agree with you, Russell, that on a calculation, millions and millions of pounds worth of money and time have been wasted there. We could, if we were optimistic, say, did that have a cultural impact? Did the entire global architectural profession advance in their careers and understanding, treating that as a piece of research and development? What I would say, with any competition, with anything you apply for, only do it if it's part of a budgeted research and development program. You know, you're running a business. That's what you do. So you say, this year I've put aside X thousand for bidding for competitions. And once you've used up that X thousand, you say, well, you know, that's this year. The next year we'll find another one. So it could have been the case that that thing was sensibly uh, good for architects, although I sincerely doubt it. Okay. So, oh, sorry, Lisa, go on. Add to the waste point. We take it quite seriously, especially with your initial brief of today's talk about how do we develop those authentic, direct relationships with the SMEs, 
those who have not entered into the market and help them grow as a process. I mean, when I think about those things, I really want to tackle that uh, with care, with caution. But if commissioning and if procurement is done, not done well, it will create waste for them. But, uh, and if it's not put together properly for those smaller companies, it might even bankrupt them. So these things, we have to be very, very careful. That's what we continue to remind our teams to be saying, that these design competitions and competitions are great, but we have to be mindful if we want those smaller companies to step up through these opportunities, we have to think about those who don't make it. Hi. Um, we've talked about the Guggenheim and design competitions, etc., but these are really the extremes. And to me, it reminds me of the discussion about when we debate DNB versus traditional contracts. I mean, the rules, are, in my view, are only meant to avoid the catastrophic extremes. They will never on their own guarantee the brilliant results like the Guggenheim. This is individual leadership, wonderful. Uh, circumstances aligning, etc. So the question is, are the rules in general enough to avoid the catastrophic for the majority of local authorities who do not have the resources of the GLA and Enfield? You know, are, are they genuinely helping most day-to-day, -day, normally under-resourced local authorities? Because that, to me, is the crux of what public procurement rules are about. What the GLA do is icing on the cake. Well, I think that's working. I think the, um, the, the, there are rules that exist uh, which actually are incredibly flexible. The problem is that we choose to apply them incredibly inflexibly. And there is a default sort of setting that most people use to, to do this stuff. Not, not realising that actually there's all sorts of other things they can do. We choose, oh, we are under-resourced and under-trained, which means yes. that we see no other option. And I, I think that's... I appreciate that, you know, this is only for the 92 practices that are on the framework, but that's what... The, the ADOP framework is not just for the GLA group. It is for any public sector organisation to use. And once... And, Initially, I've had some uh, kind of like questions that have come back from local authorities saying, well, you know, we previously we assessed our tenders on the basis of a 60-40, you know, 60 to cost, 40 to quality. Like, this is going to be really difficult to justify. But actually, because of the way that we've set out um, as a very accessible thing to use, uh, with clear guidance about how to actually run run the process like how to set up your award criteria how to get the most out of it and ultimately when you kind of back it up around the fact that this is about helping the public sector deliver on their obligations to address the social value act public sector equality duty and kind of packaging it in that way you'd be surprised at the number that actually turn around and say yeah actually we're going to use it and then they use it again and again and again and again and so I think there is, there is that role for 
the GLA not to just kind of be the icing on the cake, but actually trying to build capacity, trying to show that it can be done in a different way. And the framework is there ultimately to, to affect public procurement across the board um, in a positive way. Like obviously there, there are kind of organisations that use it in varying ways, um, which is something we try to kind of address on a case-by-case -case basis. Um, but really, if we're kind of, if we set the baseline for that process at least with ADUP, then we know that, some, that there is something good in there because they have to comply with the award criteria. They have to comply with the way that things are run. Um, so it's about promoting that best practice as best we can. I think the other thing which is quite interesting in terms of building capacity is, is um, the public practice initiative, which is placing kind of built environment expertise within local authorities. And that's been a really great mechanism for local authorities that have never really engaged very much with the GLA um, to start engaging with us and also to start using the framework and being more open to the kind of like higher quality ways of doing things. So the, I, I agree, I, I, I totally get your point and we're trying to kind of address it, but it's, it's hard. Behavior change is really hard. I see that Rob, I thought you grabbed the mic because you're about to say something profound about public procurement, Rob, but now you're just sort of wafting it. Okay. Um, so we, we, we've been, inevitably, we've, we, we've been moaning a little bit about, uh, about, about uh, this stuff. So um, anybody got any amazing suggestions as to how we might do things differently? Claire Benny. Hello, I've got too much to say and I don't know how I'm going to do it in a 30-second way. Um, right, so I think we've established there's no problem with the system at all. It's just how you use it, right? Uh, they can use it in Europe, they can use it if you're two very particular good authorities. So culture is king, right? Um, local authorities are really low-risk environments. I feel really, really sorry for them at the moment. They've got to get everything technically correct and everything beautiful and sustainable and zero carbon and climate emergency and God knows what they haven't got to do. I feel bloody sorry for them. So I'm working for about six local authorities at the minute and they come across the same problems. Um, they cannot find staff that know anything about design or care about it. It's really, really difficult for them. So how, why are they going to bother procuring a thing that they don't know what it is and why it matters. Um, I'm absolutely, they've got a perfect system set up to deliver them the architects they think they want, which is kind of low risk, okay, architects. So the system is not the problem. So we need a closer relationship between the commissioners and the supply chain. And I'm absolutely amazed that there aren't more kind of just cultural events. You know, the RABA opening its doors and saying, Local authorities, come and have a bloody glass of champagne in the RIBA or whatever it is, and just come and like talk to us. We're not scary or weird. We actually design interesting things. And if we charge you a 500 grand fee, if we get you 10 more units, we, we've paid for ourselves. You know, let's just sort of demystify the whole thing and, and really, really uncover value for money. So I think there's a, the cultural problem has to be solved by a forum for architects and clients to meet? Is it a quarterly thing with a yearly conference where you, I mean, in my case, talk about housing and everybody gets to showcase themselves and just show clients that they can have something better? But at the minute, I think it's highly unlikely that the poor old, very beleaguered local authorities and all their procurement people and lawyers and whatever else are going to sort of shift 
from the system they've got because it's just too scary to do something else. But you've got to unscarify yourselves and, and make them incredibly welcome and not, as somebody said before, sort of fill out bids really badly or lazily or... Um, and actually, I've, sorry, I'm going to say one last thing. Um, I've met a lot of local authority clients recently in local government associations sort of do's and so on who've just said, do you know what, some architects designed me a building that I could not afford and would, was never going to happen. So that happens as well and that, that has to sort of stop too. Do, do you think that uh, in your experience, the maybe, it's not, maybe this doesn't apply to the local authorities that you're working with, but that, that a lot of public sector clients think that everything's all right. And they just, they, you know, they do what they've always done because it's, it's served them well and there's no, there's no need to innovate. Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> so how do we change that? How do we tell them that it's not all right? How do they're not doing things appropriately? It's bit, well, it's a bit patronising to do that. On, on the other hand, that my entire business is based on telling them that. So, um, but... but um, somebody there has to, it, it's, it's normally either a, a lead member, a cabinet member, or it's a member of staff or something, very, very gently just says, there's a different way we can do this. And by the way, value for money is for 100 years and all of those kind of cliches. But, you know, somebody in there has to care and wants to take a risk because you, you are taking a risk. Every time you use somebody a bit funky or interesting that costs a bit more, and that, you know, it may or may not go well. And some innovative buildings don't go well, you know. But you've got those people, whether it's a member or a member of staff, have to want to take that risk. And therefore, there just has to be such a closer connection between small, medium-sized, large architects and clients. But the minute you start a procurement, you are, as somebody pointed out, in complete lockdown. You can't suddenly go and chat to 10 architects. It can't happen. So, which is ridiculous. So you need an informal culture, almost like in this room. And I bet there aren't many clients in here. How many clients in the room? Oh, there's a few. There's about six or seven. But this is, this is what it's about. Hilary. It's one of the other things to think about. So the public sector likes being told they've done things well as much as anyone else does. And... Um, whilst there might be some other issues with the kind of whole awards industry or the way kind of people get feedback or things get published, actually don't just do that in the silo of it only being about architecture. Actually think more widely about kind of how the built environment issues, how the issues on people can be reported, how the kind of other positive things can be fed back to them so that they understand, oh, we did this thing and it turned out to have that benefit and people like that thing. And then as a culture they learn, but invite elected members and councillors to those events where they get to find out about that stuff because they can be really positive advocates for doing things differently and push the teams to kind of say... I think it's good that you want to think about things a little bit more carefully and promote quality. So have those conversations and really get out of the silos is a really important thing for us all to do. And, and, and maybe what we need to do is, is have more architects as clients because it seems to me that the, you know, the, 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 the best examples of, uh, of, of procurement, the best buildings that come out of the public sector tend to happen when you've got somebody... You know who's commissioning them? Who who knows what they're who knows what they're doing? Maybe a public practice for procurement. That's too many P's, but in, yeah, maybe that's an idea. Maybe can I do uh, twenty seconds on that? You can do twenty-five I, the, seconds because obviously I am an architect and a client, so I fulfil that criterion. But um, and there are too many architects, right? And you don't earn very much, so why not 
have a module in part two, which is how to be a client. Um, I suggested this to the RBA, and they said to me, we can't tell schools what to teach. And I was like, oh, God, come on. So I, I actually in, sort of made quite a detailed eight-lecture, one-term series of different clients coming in and talking to, and just encouraging those people, because not everyone's going to become the leader of a practice. It's just not going to happen. And actually being a client's dead interesting. So I think it's correct. It's just that you're never taught that there is that other role when you're at school, are you? Hello. Um, no one's mentioned Goldsmith Street tonight. And obviously that's an uh, award-winning project. And it'd be interesting just to know about the procurement process of that, if anyone knows anything about it. It was an RBA competition, I think, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, so, so residents were, in, were on the jury panel, I think, but it was an RABA run competition. But I have to say that I think the competition was done in 2011, so it's quite a long time. It took a long time to, to go through the, the process, but yeah. Yeah, sorry, um, Russell, I just wanted to push back a bit on something that, well, I think Claire was quite interesting what you said just there about knowledge sharing. And like, Russell, when we started the talk earlier tonight, you asked, like, who in the room here is actually in charge of? making procurement and you ask like why the hell is anyone else not here and I think that's not I think that's not the right way to kind of be looking at it especially as one of the organizers of the event like you know we want to have other people in the room I was joking yeah yeah no but this is one of the few Negroni talks where like subject wise people have actually asked us to do a talk about procurement like everything else we've kind of done ourselves but this is the first one where people have been like can you do one on procurement and that's happened from like three or four different places so i think that's it's not surprising that you have younger people in the room there who aren't the decision makers who want to know more because they don't have these platforms um or there isn't some like an, uh, a knowledge sharing within smaller practices that is available like uh you know and i was asking like you know with the younger people here um, do you find that you know there is a problem with directors or practice leaders actually knowing what procurement is, like what race is? Like, are they using the right language? You know, is that something that is quite endemic within the industry, or is it kind of fine? Like, no one has to mention any names or anything. Or Reese, I could just ask you about London Architects Group instead, and the knowledge sharing you're doing there with Southern Lewisham, even. Um, yeah, I, I'm um, a director of a small, a small practice, and um, uh, we've definitely kind of probably um, been both sort of made attempts at uh, uh, public procurement at different times and been bad at it. And at times we kind of find it very frustrating and difficult, and we kind of find it difficult to overcome issues about risk and experience and, and, and that sort of thing. Um, one of the things that Bobby's alluding to is that... Um, we within sort of southeast london we're kind of getting together a group of um smaller architects uh, practices and trying to sort of share knowledge and share experience and so very much the the reason to kind of uh, to come to evenings such as this is 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 to understand the issues and try and kind of gain as much kind of insight and knowledge so that we can spread that word around and think about kind of how to be better at it uh, in the future um, it very much is that you know we're pushing back, sort of on the side of um, you know within um, local authorities. We feel as though there's probably little interaction sometimes between uh, procurement and uh, uh, planning departments, who in theory are the ones who within um, 
local authority actually maybe have a greater experience and greater knowledge of, of um, you know, uh, uh, good quality design. And so I think it's kind of like you know disappointing that um, that that isn't that isn't the case. And certainly that with you know within um, within the kind of um, a grouping together lots of small small practices, which is kind of an emerging practice, which I think has been discussed. Uh, a few times is that we're trying to engage with local authorities and find sort of alternative ways to sort of uh, wiggle our way in and um, not quite sort of handshakes on the golf course but um, trying to sort of um, affect change from kind of a grassroots level. I think what's interesting and something I've noticed over the last few years is that the attitudes to collaboration have changed a lot and I think the the public sector is getting more used to uh, teams. The idea of and architects getting better at it actually as well, and and certainly a lot of the work that we're winning uh, is collaborating either with bigger practices or with smaller practices, and and attitudes to that, you know, are, that that's extremely helpful, and that is a way to get in, you know, get experience in these things. And so, I mean, I would urge anybody who's not uh, who's not do, currently doing public sector work and is wants to is to is to collaborate with bigger with bigger practices because I think that's that is a, a really interesting way of, um, of of getting access to to fairly significant projects. Did you want to make a, a point? You, you had your hand up a second ago. Yeah. There you go. Okay. Well, no, go for it. Kind of what, dis what, what disconnected, but connected. No, that's okay. Uh, no, I was in terms of uh, the the um, intermediate between the end product and the initial competition. And when you're trying to write these briefs, um, I was thinking specifically at housing and GLA and um, the new fund with the ballot process and how this ballot process is going to um, impact on um, brief and value for money and how are you going to give extra resource to the council to clap, bring all these things together because um, you put a bid for one project together and then that comes to um, the end client, I suppose, the residents and if this doesn't go to ballot, how does this work and how do you get the end clients more involved in the um, brief writing or uh, have consultation earlier before the bids are made and how yeah how the how the ballot process is going to affect the public procurement coming forward? So, so it's probably just worth explaining to those who aren't familiar that that I'm, I'm right in saying that any this is talking about estate regeneration projects, aren't we? So, so, specifically, so, so, housing, yeah. uh, public housing. So any 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 um, estate regeneration project that receives uh, mayoral money now has to go to a ballot process to make sure that the um, the, the, the the residents are um, on on board with it. Do you want to answer that, Ray? It's quite a tricky one, but... I'll, I'll be honest and say that I don't know the full context, so I can't give you a full answer. I, I can give you a sidestepped answer, <laughs> which is... Um, I don't, and I don't know if this is helpful at all, but um, if we're talking specifically about housing funding, um, it might be interesting to, um, to know that one of the things that we're doing as part of the Good Growth by Design programme is looking at design quality across different teams within the GLA group, one of those teams being housing and land, and, on, and as well as other kind of mayoral development corporations, um, 
and other sort of teams and to understand their processes for, co for commissioning and ensuring design quality to ensure that they sort of have that in place. And there is a kind of a push in terms of consistency across the organisation to get things to where they should be. Um, so, as I said, it's not a kind of direct answer about the ballot process because I'm not 100% sure about how that housing funding is tied in because it's not in my department. But still, from a good growth by design perspective, we are looking at consistency and supporting other teams to kind of think about how quality commissioning can feed into the different processes that they're involved with, whether it's as a funding kind of organisation or a delivery organization or what have you because we kind of play different roles at the GLA so is I think we've got time for one more question before we wrap up okay I d one thing I just wanted to ask about really is I should say I'm from public practice working in Camden so I'm an architect that's kind of transitioned into public sector I don't think many people outside especially working in a small practice well really fully understand what's going on inside uh a planning authority, what support is really out there to to get rid of bad tenders and bad, you know, all the things that people have said are bad and are difficult to kind of, you know, judge in a procurement. We haven't seen any example. Like no, no one that hasn't seen those understands what that really means. And it's a, it's a kind of how do we make it more transparent of how do you make a good tender? I think it's a double-edged thing. As a commissioner, you want somehow, you haven't got, too much time to do so much research on somebody but you want them to bring the best case and sort of um sort of bid they can so how we so that you you know because the, the system is the way the system is so how and what are we doing to support people to understand what makes a good bid that lecture that you said would be a great lecture for most people to have had as well so it's all those things of what's the ROBA doing what are small practices doing what is um, the local authority doing we're not going to massively churn the stip uh, sort of turn the ship of the, the process so let's just all educate ourselves a bit more of what we need events like this talking to each other sharing those sort of experiences because we're not going to kind of tackle those bigger things head on but we can kind of upskill and share that knowledge outside of um yeah it's just it's it's the translation that needs i'm finding it like a huge uh, culture shock in terms of the difference so I think a lot of other people that want to get involved would need to understand that a little bit too. So, yeah, what support is there? What are we doing? Okay. I mean, it also feels like design is, as often the way in these talks, is design might be the tip of the iceberg as well because, you know, we talk about consistency, but consistency is about delivery as well. And, you know, there's the inefficiencies through delivery. I mean, I'm, I'm in a situation at the moment in Cambridge where you have to pay a, an extortionate amount of money for an electrician on site and so, you know, when you talk about value for money and good design and good quality and good end product, actually, design only takes you so far through that process. And, um, you know, when people, the lay people look at the newspapers and they see stadiums going double over budget and taking a lot longer to do, you know, they ask the obvious question, which is why, how is this possible? Um, and that's sort of endemic, really, within the industry from sort of the opposition side of it, if I can put it that way, although they shouldn't be seen that way. It's the contracting side. So, so maybe we have to wrap it up. But, um, but may, maybe if one thing we can take away from this is, uh, well, if, if you speak to anybody within the ROBA, I mean, with the, with the sort of the, the staff within the ROBA, they talk about the holy trinity of architects uh, whining. Um, 
One is fees, one is planning, and one is procurement. So, you know, if what, may, maybe what we need to do is we need to find a way of of of, of pursuing uh, Claire's suggestion of getting public commissioners, getting architects, getting the ROBA in a room, and 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 you know, talking to one another because it does seem to me that the the biggest issue is the barriers between us. And actually, if we all had a common you know, we all know we're all after the same thing ultimately. If there's a way that we can sort of sit together and discuss that and work out some better ways of doing it, then we'd be on to a winner. It's cheaper than MIPIM. It's cheaper. Well, not if you've paid for MIPIM and you can't go because it's actually, yeah, but there we go. But that would be cheap. I, I might put money into that, definitely. Um, right. Well, it's a huge topic and I, we've just scratched the surface this evening. But thank you all very much for coming and. Um, uh, yeah, and it's and it's great to see many people talking to be here talking about procurement, which is which is um, which is great. So, uh, I just like to thank uh, well thank the hosts, thank Ombra for the great food and drinks, and for uh, my wonderful guests uh, Merlin, Lisa, Hilary, and Ray. Uh, please give them all a uh, a round of applause. Talks, visit our website at www.fourthspace.co.uk where you can see all our past and upcoming events or find us and subscribe to the show in iTunes. Negroni Talks, mixing it in architecture. Thanks for listening. For more on Negroni Talks, visit our website at www.fourthspace.co.uk where you can see all our past and upcoming events or find us and subscribe to the show in iTunes. Negroni Talks, mixing it in architecture. Thanks for listening. For more on Negroni Talks, visit our website at www.fourthspace.co.uk where you can see all our past and upcoming events or find us and subscribe to the show in iTunes. Negroni Talks, mixing it in architecture.